Jesus said, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is speaking to the Jewish people who rejected him. They said, hail him on Palm Sunday. A few days later, they would say, nail him. And he said, I will not come back. I cannot come back until you, the Jewish nation, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's one of the focuses of the great tribulation. And that's why one of the terms in the Old Testament for this time frame is called the time of Israel or the time of Jacob's trouble. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Pastor Carl reminds us that leading up to the second coming, we are going to see the nations of the world as they begin to gather together to go against Israel and Israel's King Jesus. Today's sermon is entitled, The Battle of Armageddon. Please join us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17, as we begin. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book of the Bible. And if you're here for the first time, typically I take a book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But right now we're between books and I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And this morning you can see we are exploring the topic that is popularly called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, you look at the world, and it seems like in many ways it's out of control. And yet, if you have even a smidgen of biblical intelligence, then you know that God is actually setting the schedule for this great battle known as Armageddon, that we're living in the shadows of it. It seems like the dynamite has been laid, the fuse has been set, it's been lit, and we're headed towards that day. Now, look, no one knows the day or the hour, but you almost have to be blind not to see that the Lord is setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. And sadly, when people speak of the second coming, sometimes they spiritualize it and they say, well, the world is simply going to become more Christianized. That's the second coming. Well, that's not true. Remember when he ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives, two angels said to the disciples, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus literally, actually, bodily, visibly was taken up into heaven. And the scripture is clear that Jesus will literally, bodily, visibly come back again. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. The incarnation and the coronation are linked together in scripture. In fact, very often, In a single verse of scripture, the whole program of God is given. A baby will be born. That's the incarnation. The governments of the world will rest on his shoulders. Same verse. That's the coronation. That happens at his second coming. And so the second coming of Christ is promised throughout the scripture. And right now we are living between the two mountain peaks of prophecy, between the incarnation and the coronation between those two points is the church age. But one of these days, the Lord is going to catch up his church. And so the Bible speaks of the return of Christ unfolding in two dimensions. First, when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's called harpazo, to be snatched up. In the Latin translation, we get from that our English word rapture. And so we speak of the rapture of the church. 
Whereas at the second coming, we don't meet the Lord in the air. We come back with him to the earth, and he literally physically plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, when you speak about the return of Christ, people laugh and they mock preachers like me, and they say, oh, that's silly. But that's exactly what God said would happen, especially in the latter days, that men would become scoffers. They'd make fun of this central doctrine. And so here's the living God. He is going to come and catch up his people. The rapture is a non-prophetic event in the sense that nothing has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. Whereas the second coming of Christ to the earth, it's a a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen, especially within the realms of a piece of property that today we call Israel. And so a hundred years ago, some of the very things I'm going to preach at today, folks would be scratching their head over because they'd say Israel wasn't a nation. How can these things be? And so for literally almost 1,900 years, Israel was out of the land, just as God said. But he said repeatedly in Scripture at the end of time. So how do we know this time frame is different with all of the various signs that are taking place? Because Israel is back in the land. Now look, no one knows the day or the hour, but we know the season. And even if someone could come up with the right day and hour, if I were God, I'd change it just to prove them wrong, you know? <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that we are living in exciting days and that God is laying the foundation. Now, I often have told you that when you see the Christmas decorations go up around October, you know that Thanksgiving is near. I have a son who's uh, the head of homedepot.com and in the fall, he sent me a picture of uh, their Christmas decorations going up. And, and he put in a caption underneath, he said, Dad, Thanksgiving is near. <laughs> I knew what he was saying. When you see the Christmas decorations going up, you know Thanksgiving is near. When you see God setting the stage for the second coming, you know the rapture is all that much closer. And so the Jewish people, who for the most part rejected Jesus when he came the first time, they're going to be his instrument both geographically and spiritually, to bring his return from heaven. Revelation 19, I hope you have found it by now. We're going to look at a multiplicity of scripture concerning this coming battle of Armageddon, but we'll use this as our headquarter text. Revelation 19, beginning now in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble, for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from his mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Now, let's fix our minds exactly in the period of time that we're speaking of. Here's a diagram to help us to put together some visuals. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up the rapture of the church. 
And after the church is caught up, there's a space of time. We're not told how long. Weeks, days, months, some could think longer. It seems to be very quick, but there's a space of time. And what will start the clock for the 70th week of Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, the first 69 were fulfilled in the first coming, but then there's a gap of time between these two mountain peaks of the incarnation and the coronation is the church age. But once the church is removed and once the man, the prince who is to come, the antichrist, the beast comes and signs a covenant with Israel, that will start the clock for the final seven years leading up to the second coming of Christ. And of course, this period is divided into two halves. The first half, Israel's protected. And the second half, Israel is persecuted. And the center event is when the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple and he commits the abomination of desolation. And we gave four messages to that in this series. And Jesus, of course, describes the first half when the sealed judgments, there are seven seals as unfolding as merely the beginning of birth pangs. Sometimes Christians loosely say, well, we're seeing all these tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, and these are the birth pangs. Not really, but remember, to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And I think what we're seeing is the pregnancy and maybe even the Braxton Hicks contractions. But the birth pangs, Jesus is clear, do not start until the tribulation begins to unfold. And when this center event takes place, they begin to intensify. And so it is like with a woman in labor. The birth pangs get closer and closer and more and more intense until birth comes, and in this case, the Lord from heaven. And so the first seven seals, you can only see one at a time, as John describes the nature of the seals. But when the seventh seal is opened, contained in it are seven trumpet judgments, and contained in the seventh trumpet are seven bowl judgments. And when the people in heaven witness that, they're not witnessing what's happening on the earth, but they're witnessing what God is about to unfold on the earth, takes their breath away. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Now, leading up to the second coming, we're going to see this morning the nations of the world beginning to gather together to go against Israel and Israel's king, Jesus. In fact, it's during the sixth bowl judgment that the Euphrates River is dried up and their plans are enacted and they walk up the Euphrates River into Israel itself. And in the bowl judgments, we see incredible uh, judgments against the earth itself. In the seal judgments, just one-third of the earth is destroyed. Or, or excuse me, uh, one, one, in the trumpet judgments, one-third of the earth is destroyed. But when you come to the bowl judgments, it affects the entire planet. And this world that seemingly has deified Mother Nature, they're going to see that it's Father God who's in charge, and he is going to bring some devastation on the planet like the world has never, ever, ever seen. You say, well, what's the purpose in all of this? Why does God even allow these judgments of wrath to unfold on the earth? In one word, salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart is for people's conversion. First and foremost, we learn from the prophets and from the revelation itself, this is going to be a time of Jewish conversion. Remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. And so for the most part, except for a remnant throughout the ages, most Jews have been in unbelief. That's all going to change. The largely Gentile church will be taken away, 
and the Jewish people will be leading through 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They'll be preaching the gospel to the entire world, and multitudes of Jews will be saved, such that Paul can say all Israel will be saved. And John sees through the testimony of these 144,000 missionaries, a great multitude that no one can count, like the sands of the seashore from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, the details of their salvation are filled out in Revelation 6 through 18. Nonetheless, it was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. Listen to these words from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 8 through 14, by the way, deals with the end times, if you're familiar with the prophet Zechariah. And in chapter 12 and verse 10, God prophesies, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, it's not when they see Jesus that they're converted. That would be unfair terms because someone would say, hey, look, when I see Jesus, when I see him, I'll believe. No, what is happening, just like when Paul says, I publicly portrayed Jesus to you Galatians is crucified. They saw Jesus crucified through the preaching of Paul. The Jewish people, through the preaching of the 144,000 and the two witnesses on the Temple Mount, are going to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Their hearts will be broken during the tribulation period as God pours out this spirit of grace on the Jewish people, and when they literally see him, their heart will be broken because they will have recognized that they had rejected their Savior. But again, Christ's coming to the earth cannot happen until they first believe. So that tells you right off that their conversion is not literally um, at the moment they see Jesus. It happens before that, and many passages teach that. Not to mention what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. We studied it. Jesus said, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is speaking to the Jewish people who rejected him. They said, hail him on Palm Sunday. A few days later, they would say, nail him. And he said, I will not come back. I cannot come back until you, the Jewish nation, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's one of the focuses of the great tribulation. And that's why one of the terms in the Old Testament for this time frame is called the time of Israel or the time of Jacob's trouble. And again, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And that will happen during this time frame known as the tribulation. So in one word, tribulation speaks of salvation. Now, with that said, let me bring us into the context of our passage. If you were here last time, we studied verses 11 through 16, what refers to Christ's second coming to earth. And it really serves as a textual bridge for this war that is coming called the Battle of Armageddon. Let's pick it up in verse 11 for just a moment. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now let me parenthetically pause here. This is not the biblical basis for a tattoo, though people struggle to find one. What he is saying, in fact, literally the Greek text reads, and on his robe, even on his thigh, he has a name written. So Jesus, when he comes back, is wearing a robe, and monogrammed on the robe, on the thigh, is this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's a significant title because that's the title that Moses gives to God the Father in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 17, Moses wrote, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, and the awesome God. But here, both titles are applied to the Lord Jesus. He's called the Lord of lords. He's called the King of kings. Malek ha-malekam, Adonai ha-adonim. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. And that is significant because Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're equal in nature, in eternality, in power, and so forth. And so he's coming back, and this is a picture of his sovereignty. This is a picture of his deity. And he's on a white stallion, and this wobbly kingdom that Satan is trying to build against God's Messiah is about to be crushed here at the Battle of Armageddon. And I want you to see the total failure and the total collapse that is going to happen. If you're using the note-taking outline provided in the bulletin, you can print it out online. There are three principles that concern this coming battle. First, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. I want you to see how Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. And this really is a scene of doom and gloom as Satan's kingdom collapses as it's predicted and as it's enacted, not just by the Old Testament, but in this text itself. And it begins with the calling of the birds, the calling of the fowls. Notice, if you will, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So the Lord is on his white horse. And as we studied last time, there's an army of white horses following him. That's us. That's the church. First, he comes for us. We meet him in the air. Then we come back with him to the earth. And the scripture describes this angel who is bright as standing in the sun. It reminds me of the apostle Paul on the Damascus road. Do you remember at high noon when the sun is highest and brightest in the sky, Jesus appears, and Jesus outshines the sun. Look, you light a candle in the middle of the day, it does nothing. And here's this bright angel, especially against a dark backdrop. You know, you go in and you look at a diamond, and the, the, the man pulls out a nice piece of black felt to make the diamond pop, and, well, there's going to be a black backdrop. And it's the birds of the air. Look further in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which are in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. 
Now, as you know, Israel is in the middle of three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And experts tell us that every year some 500 million birds fly over Israel as they head into Europe, Asia, into Africa. Uh, One fall trip many years ago, about a decade ago, we're in Israel and we just had to stop and look. I'd never seen anything like it before or since. Just millions and millions of birds in that migration process flying overhead. And so that's the backdrop to this bright and glorious angel of God who the scripture says cries out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. They're flying in midheaven or you could render it high overhead. These are scavenger birds. And here is this mighty angel. And if you've studied the Revelation, angels are not fat little babies like Hallmark will put them on a card or they're not these effeminate type creatures. They are not only servants to those who will inherit salvation, but they are mighty warriors. And here is this mighty warrior angel calling all the birds of the sky for this battle. And by the way, Jesus references this. You might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 24, 28. Matthew 24, 28. And there, of course, the Lord Jesus speaks of all the birds that will be present at his second coming. So this is a great supper that God gives to the birds here at the campaign called Armageddon. And we'll see in just a moment, the armies of the world are fighting against one nation at their capital, Jerusalem, and they are fighting one Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And there's an invitation from this angel, come, assemble for the great supper of God. And so here's God's victory over the enemies that are forcing their way into Israel to go against the Jewish people. You say, where is the food? The people are the food. This is the greatest expression, I suppose, of international cuisine you could ever imagine. All the nations of the world, they're coming together. And God's birds are going to eat these dead people. Now, please don't miss the timing of the angel's invitation. He announces the invitation for all the birds to gather um, ever before the battle begins. So here they are. You know, it's got to be intimidating. What are all these birds doing here? Millions and millions and millions of birds flying in the sky. Wave after wave after wave of birds coming upon Israel. And God's armies are coming from heaven, wave after wave of the angelic army and the church army where we are in white horses following the Lord Jesus. And the scripture says there's a word protruding, a sword protruding from his mouth. And last week we studied it carefully and we let scripture interpret scripture. We saw that the sword that's proceeding from his mouth is the word of God. Paul speaks of the word of God in that fashion, as does the writer of the Hebrews, where he says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so the Lord is going to come and by the word of his mouth, he's going to shut down these armies. You say, what is he going to say? Probably just drop dead. Bingo. Millions of people dead all across this great battlefield. And Hebrews 11.3 tells us that the universe was created by the word of God. God just spoke it and from his fingertips came galaxies and universes. 
When he speaks on this occasion, he is going to speak a word of judgment to all these armies, all the nations of the earth. You say, is the United States in prophecy? They're right here with all the other nations. (laughs) They're here. All the nations are. All the nations are going to come against Jerusalem, against God's people. Now remember, there are two banquets that are described here in the 19th chapter. A few sessions ago, we studied one of those banquets. Do you remember what it was? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Two banquets. You're either going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you will be at this particular banquet called the great supper of God. One is a banquet of great joy. The other is a banquet of great sorrow. At one banquet, you will be at the supper. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you don't know him, well, many will be the supper. They will literally be eaten by the bird. So that's the calling of the fowl. Secondly, I want you to think for a moment about the consuming of the flesh, the consuming of the flesh. All the birds are called to come and to assemble for what purpose? Verse 18 says, so that, here's the reason so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. I mean, this is an unparalleled slaughter with millions of dead bodies up and down the land of Jerusalem over this 200-mile stretch. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 14 and verse 20, where Armageddon is also described in John's vision. Listen to that verse. It says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles, for a distance of 200 miles. The slaughter will be so great, the scripture teaches the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Now, the skeptics have said, because largely Christians have given them an opportunity, and they said, look, if every single person on the planet were on this piece of land, and they all died at once, and their bodies bled out, there wouldn't be enough blood to bring their blood up to the horse's bridle. That's not what the text is saying. He is speaking about the this blood-soaked ground. Some of you have rot, rode and ridden horses on a day that's muddy and it's wet and soaked and the mud comes all the way up to the horse's bridle. He is just reminding us that there's going to be so much death, so much blood, that it will come all the way up to the horse's bridles. By the way, it appears by the end of the tribulation, after the fourth bowl, uh, that maybe some of the more conventional methods of military uh, means will be canceled at that point. And I have a whole message on that if you're interested. 72 hours, search the scriptures.org. You can la- download the app if that would be helpful to you. But it appears that they are literally on horses because the conventional means are gone. In either case, for this great supper, the birds will notice, eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on the horses, the flesh of all men, free men, slaves, small and great. Now in life, we tend to rank men by class, and uh, he is just reminding us that no one is outside the realm of this coming judgment. Kings, commanders, mighty men, slaves, and free men. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 
1-800-227-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 022. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.